0: You're listening to SBS News.
1: Probably about three weeks went by and I started to notice that uh, my workplace was, you know, come on, <laughs> you've, you've called in sick a few times already, like we really need you to be
0: back in the workplace and performing. because it's part of the human journey, and it's something we shouldn't rush, or we shouldn't make it to be a spectacle.
2: Everyone, at some point or another, will lose someone or something they love. And yet death and grief are often seen as taboo, including in our dominant Western culture. So how do different cultures hold space for grief, and are some better equipped than others? And how can we think about grief beyond the concept of death looking at other profoundly life-changing forms of loss i'm katrina Stewart and this is the second episode of living loss in this episode we explore the cultural taboos that still surround grief looking at the unique and multifaceted ways different cultures hold space for grief sophie mills is founder of the grief revolution an organisation that tries to break down taboos surrounding death and grief through counselling services and community workshops. Her organisation was inspired by the death of her father when she was 24 years old, following two years of profound grief and depression and subsequently the birth of her second child. Sophie says her loss was compounded by what she describes as a grief illiteracy in both her household and wider Western culture. When I was 24, I had my dad die and I didn't really have any
1: skills in terms of how to process that grief. Um, And, you know, I found that sort of for the first few weeks, it was okay because I guess that was accepted for you to have an emotional response for the first few weeks. Probably about three weeks went by and I started to notice that uh, my workplace was, you know, come on, <laughs> you've you've called in sick a few times already, like we really need you to be back in the workplace and performing. Um, my friends were sort of confused as to why I wasn't coming to the social events. And I was 24 at this age, like I'm still a young woman, you know, kind of expected to be just happy-go-lucky, you know, life shouldn't have really dealt you many too hard blows
2: yet. Sophie says she came to understand that our consumer-based society doesn't allow time for grief, as an extended emotional response is counterproductive. She also found grief was often perceived as eternal, which was a huge barrier to living with loss.
1: I think we have an underlying belief that once a huge loss or trauma or, or something happens to us, that we will never um, get over it. Mm. And we almost wear the suffering as a badge of honor, you know, and I've I've believed that so wholeheartedly when my dad first died, you know, we had a a very deep connection. He was a quadriplegic and I was his carer and, you know, he was my father, but, you know, he was also my friend and it it was very entwined. And so the loss was profound for me. We'll never be able to forget that person and nor would we want to, But the messaging of you could never have a thriving, happy, joyful life after a major loss is really detrimental to the individual and to the collective.
2: Employees in Australia are entitled to two days of compassionate leave following the death of a family member. Grief counsellor Marianne Bowdler explains how this is not conducive to a holistic grieving process. She says work and other commitments often interfere with rituals which are pivotal in navigating grief.
1: The current predominant
2: Western culture, if I could call it that, is not very comfortable around death, not very good at ritual and not very good at supporting grieving. The way that we give two days bereavement leave just doesn't correspond. Other cultures have rituals that you do at one year or rituals you do at six months, rituals that you do in an ongoing way. And the rituals that we have in our different cultures, our many, many different cultures that we have in Australia, are all ways that help us do that first task of acknowledging the reality of the death. The difficulty, I think, is where all these important rituals of cultures come into conflict with our work or our boss. Grief Australia's Christopher Hall says our society is to blame for most of the problems a grieving person encounters. He says we often fail as a community to offer appropriate care to grieving people.
0: So that's a really strong message from our culture that grief is like the common cold you go through this short period of disruption but you return to be a normal productive member of 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 the human race within three to four days we know that social support starts to drop off diminish three to four days after the death so By the time you've defrosted the last casserole and you've thrown out the last bunch of flowers, the expectation is that get back on the horse and get back into life. And grief is not like that. Um, We like things that are tidy and neat. Uh, In the early days, people used to talk about going through particular stages in this particular order. It's, It's not like that. It's messy and it takes time.
2: Julia lost her mother just three days before her 17th birthday and found there was very little time to process her grief. She had also just moved to Australia from Indonesia where it quickly became clear grief was processed very differently.
0: It was very different here in Australia compared to living overseas. I I was living in Indonesia before this and I think um, when it comes to grieving, people take it very seriously and they actually give you much more time in the process having people be a part of that event. Whereas here it it felt like it was all done quickly.
2: Julia wishes the Western world could adopt aspects of the more private ceremony carried out in countries like Indonesia.
0: I think it makes the experience much more relatable because it's part of the human journey and it's something we shouldn't rush or we shouldn't make it to be a spectacle. There's They place such a heavy importance on, on making it sacred and so we would have religious people conducting these ceremonies. Not everyone's allowed to attend. Um, There's strict protocol on what to follow during the the service, and it's not something publicly displayed. It's only within that community. So it's very tight-knit, and I think that's what makes it different.
2: Sophie certainly found there was no adequate vocabulary around grief in dominant Western culture, inspiring her to establish the Grief Revolution she became deeply curious about the intrinsic correlation between birth and death after the birth of her second child. As part of the organisation, Sophie works as a death doula and grief coach, assisting individuals with a terminal diagnosis alongside their families, as well as offering counselling services and community workshops around grief. Ideally, what I'm
1: Hoping to do is alleviate anxiety, allow people to just flow with the process more. But because we live in such a fear based culture, it is really challenging to essentially retrain our brains to view death differently. Um, because, you know, I mean, there's so many mothers that don't even say the word death to their children. Or even, I mean, many adults say, oh, my such and such passed away, as opposed to my such and such died. And it's because of the discomfort that we physically feel in our body when we hear the word death die
2: dead. It's not just Western culture which has an avoidant relationship with death. Joseph Ho has been working as a funeral director in Sydney for 15 years, mostly with Chinese communities. He says in his experience, there's a reluctance to talk about death in Chinese Australian communities.
3: There's still a uh, big avoidance in, in the, whether it's in Sydney, Chinese community or in Hong Kong or so I'm they always try to avoid talking about death because they do they do believe it's bringing in bad luck. Um they don't want to jinx it <laughs> in a word. It's hard to have it's hard to have them understand getting it a pre-plan or pre pray for funeral or start planning a funeral. People don't people believe if you start planning you die sooner. That's that type of thinking.
2: Mr. Ho says these beliefs are cultural, but religion plays a significant role. He describes how Buddhist or Taoist faiths tend to place greater emphasis on certain ideas around death, whereas Christian Chinese are less likely to express these concerns.
3: They they always try to avoid these death on the first day, dates with number four in it. They will like to pick a particular day and time for the actual funeral service, just so that it will they will not come in conflict with the children's um, star sign, I guess, or the year that they were born. So there's no conflict that will not bring them bad luck for attending a funeral on a certain day.
2: In Mr Ho's experience, Asian cultures are generally less expressive about their emotions than Western cultures. He says this is evident even when a family member dies.
3: Asians express their grief or even their love so parents don't really express the love to the children. That's just an Asian parents thing. At the same time, the Asian kids don't express their grief towards their parents. Um, they There is sadness, there is upset, but they, at the same time, they need to focus, they will focus on the actual funeral and try to do every single thing according to the, to the mum uh, cultural belief. The the deceased culture and belief they they able to able to focus a bit more um, in the actual details of the the funeral and they may grieve at their own time afterwards.
2: But as Dr Ho describes, this doesn't mean grief is absent. In fact, it can depend a lot on the individual as well as generational differences. Dorothy Yu is the founder of the Chinese Cancer and Chronic Illness Society of Victoria an organisation that began 27 years ago when Ms Yu was asked by Cancer Council Victoria to help establish a support network for Chinese-speaking people living with cancer. Across her many years of working with cancer patients, Ms Yu finds there's a variety of responses to a diagnosis for both the individual and their loved ones. But anxiety around death is certainly prevalent.
4: Sometimes could be housing issue or some a young mother who was just diagnosed with cancer and then, you know, wearing, you know, who's looking after my my kids? and Or a breadwinner suddenly diagnosed with cancer and then, oh, you know, yeah, what to do, you know, where can I get money, you know, I need to feed my family, all these things, big things and little things and also emotional issues as well because they, you know, really find it hard to cope with this sudden, you know, crisis, you know, like, I'm diagnosed with cancer, and people still have this fear, you know, with this debilitating illness, because I think, I mean, long time ago, we think cancer means death.
2: For some people,
4: cancer can
2: mean death, and Ms Yu says there's again a mixed emotional response to a terminal diagnosis. She says traditional Chinese culture avoids talking about death altogether, but in Chinese-Australian communities generational and individual preferences can shape the willingness to discuss death
4: and dying. I actually felt that a lot of older people are quite reluctant to talk about their personal uh, experience but uh, in general say if I go to a group and, and ask oh is it okay that I talk about death and dying and everybody will say that's fine but if I talk to a client on an individual basis about their own mortality, then then they're probably a bit yeah, uncomfortable because it's about himself or herself.
2: She said the communication in some families can start to break down following a diagnosis, describing an experience where a client was distressed about his family's decision to conceal his father's terminal diagnosis from him.
4: The family do not warn the patient, no. They don't want the patient to know because they think that he he can't hack it yeah. So So, but then that's that's not something that we would really you know yeah encourage our clients to do. As that's why we explain to them. Oh Well, it's it's good actually not to hide you know yeah. So that's why you know he, he said he doesn't know how to how to disclose you know you know the, the this prognosis to his father.
2: Ms Yu has witnessed a sense of relief for individuals and their families in palliative care when they have been able to share their experiences. It might start with reluctance, but she says it nearly always reaps benefits when people open up about their grief.
4: And some people don't understand the benefits of counselling because they sometimes they say, what is the point, you know, you can't bring my wife back, you can't bring my husband back. So sometimes it's hard to engage them. Sometimes you just try to avoid, you know, counselling. Just say, oh, can I come to have a chat with you? You know, and then they are open to it. And then when, when we chat, they think, thank you very much, Mrs Yu, you know, having a chat with me. And I had the opportunity, you know, to talk about my late husband, my son. I think the most important thing that we as workers um, acknowledge really give permission for them to talk about their grief you know really give permission for them to grieve any time any day
2: this urge to hide from grief is something sophie understands in the first few weeks following her father's death she used to cry in the back of the car to hide her grief even from her immediate family but since establishing the grief revolution community she's discovered an immense relief in talking about death.
1: The moment you give people permission, there is like this, ah, oh, everyone just settles into it. And when there's, there's somebody holding a space and they're using the words death, died, dying, and you set the tone, you often find that, because we're all human, we all feel the same thing. We've all had somebody in our life die or a goldfish when we were a kid, or some, there's been a loss somewhere. So we've all experienced it. And as soon as you bring those um, unspoken things to the surface, most people go, yeah, thank you. It's, it's just the truth.
2: Everybody dies. And it's the fear that holds us back. In our next episode, we delve into how grief is navigated in Indigenous Australian cultures and the ways in which complex layers of grief are explored. Katrina Stirrett, SBS News.